Hey, thanks for checking out the Blake Bins podcast. On this episode, I sit down with Jeanette Bieza Collins. She's the Entrepreneurial Development Director for the Northwest Arkansas Council. You might find her dealing with startups, with small businesses, nonprofits, entrepreneurs. She really does it all and works with quite a few different resources here in Northwest Arkansas. She's incredible. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Take a listen. Let me know what you think, and I will catch you next week. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Blake Benz Podcast. I am sitting at a local favorite of mine, Red Kite Coffee, drinking some delicious coffee with a friend of mine, Jeanette Bayeza Collins. She is the Entrepreneurial Development Director at the Northwest Arkansas Council, has been here for almost 20 years, and is passionate about quite a few things related to business and startup culture. Jeanette, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Of course. Of course. So thank you so much for sitting down with me. I'm really excited. And uh, for my listeners, I honestly don't even know how this really came about. I I found a website. I think it was like Startup NWA, uh, which for my listeners who aren't in Northwest Arkansas, you've probably heard me obnoxiously talk about it. Really vibrant, incredible community. Uh, And I know I'm really passionate about growing it business-wise. So I came across Startup NWA, and I typically don't do this, but I just sent a random email out, I guess, to like support at, I don't know where, where it went. I said, yeah, if I can help at all. And then here you are. We had a chance to meet. Contact forms, website contact forms. People <laughs> still use them. I guess so. Yeah, you know what's <laughs> so funny? Them. You know what's funny about that was because I was, I remember writing it, and I did it just real quick, and I remember thinking, this is going into like... <laughs> into the black hole. It's going into the void. It's It's going into nothing, so... No, I was thrilled. I was thrilled to see it, and I also love the name. I'm like, good advice. I've got to, I've got to find out more about this. Well, you know, um, what's really funny about the name is um, I've had people ask, and this, this now sounds like really obnoxious because I'm like, well, let me tell you about how great this name is. But I had someone ask, like, so how did you go through picking the name? And it was like literally a Saturday afternoon. It was like the day I decided I want to start my own business, and I thought, well, what do I call it? And I thought. I feel like I give good advice. So maybe I'll just call it that. But what's funny is pe- some people have been like, oh, I love that name. But then I've had other people who are like, that is the dumbest name <laughs> I've ever heard. And so I'm like, well, it is what it is, I guess. That's true art. It's evocative. Whether people <laughs> like it or they don't like it, at least they're talking to you about it. Right, right. So tell me, you know, we. I feel like there's a, I feel a little press for time in that I know, you know, that the episode, it's almost an hour long, but... There's so much I want to get your perspective on, and I feel like you have a hand in so many things, even outside of like business culture. Uh, you know, we had the, the prologues event that you threw, mm-hmm. that you put together. Let's say the party you threw. It was kind of a party. Uh, you put that together with a couple other people last month, uh, and that's a little unrelated to maybe your main focus, but it's also not. And so I, I, I really, you know, in terms of where the conversation goes today, I'm just excited because I feel like. I feel like we're going to talk for about an hour and it's going to be like, wow, we only, there's so much we left on the table. So let's do this if it's okay. I'd like to, let's, let's put together the story of who you are a little bit. And then I'd love to hear more about what you're doing today and how you see business, entrepreneurship, all those things. Uh, But you were telling me before we started that you came to Northwest Arkansas in 2001. Mm -hmm. 
So you've spent 20 years here. It's true. And I've seen it change. And it's changed a lot in those 20 years. I've heard people say this. So like how, <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like the, you know, you guys have no idea. But, you know, because I've only been here for six years. Right. So what's what's changed in the last 20 years? What has changed? Well, I think we have really grown together more as a region. So I moved here to Fayetteville, but I worked in Springdale. And then seeing all the communities grow and really create their own identities, more so in the past, I would say, six to seven years has been really fun. Uh, but it has been, it's been a journey. And I think that part of the through line, and people say this to me a lot, and my husband will even say, people ask me what you do, and I have a really hard time, which <laughs> is pretty atrocious considering that I have a marketing <laughs> background. But I, I, the through line really is about community building and also surrounding people with the resources to um, realize their potential and also helping them with self-awareness to know what they want to do. And so whether that's nonprofits or ventures or any particular project, it starts with an idea and then it really does become about how do I get validation around this idea? How do I ask the right questions? And mm. then more importantly, is how do I share that story? And so that mm. was part of um, the kickoff of prologues. We talked about, yes, we have a ton of nonprofits doing incredible things here. We have wonderful individuals who are passionate about the work that they do, but it's so rare uh, that we really look at the humans who are creating the impact in the region. And so the premise of that event was more so about not just about what you do, but what brought you to the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So that was the challenge that we gave each of our story shares was to tell them, uh, tell all of us, what's the story before or the backstory of your story of impact? Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because <clears throat> it feels like today, especially in like the digital marketing world, mm -hmm. that your personal brand is so powerful more, you know, infinitely more than your product now. Right. And I even see it too on even, which, you know, I don't have cable, but the rare time <laughs> that I'm watching, I mean, I'm watching TV all the time, but the rare time I'm watching cable, I notice that a lot of commercials will have, um, now it'll be like, you know, for example, the mom who says like, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm a mom of two, and this is the product, and they don't do it this overt, right. but it's like, it's like their story mm -hmm. rather than, you know, here's how amazing this product is. And I see that all over LinkedIn, social media, Right. You know, that story piece. We're all makers. Right? Yeah. And so I think there's this culture of making um, where some people think that term might be exclusive because they, they think about a makerspace and they think about technical 3D printers and they're like, is that a place for me? Whereas makers who are part of the movement, we're like, we don't understand. It's literally the common denominator is you're making something. Uh-huh. And so I think all of us have in our own way, and especially with the onset of social media, had to become makers um, where that where we're either creating value or we're creating a product, we're creating a service. But more importantly, people want to know who we are uh -huh. and why we're doing what we're doing. And when people support, again, it's more about those emotional drivers, really thinking about um, what are the motivations behind what it is that I'm consuming. Uh -huh. You know, and it's 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 funny even like listening to you because as you were kind of laughing about how do you describe yourself, <laughs> uh, Joy, my wife and I we were having dinner with someone else the other night, and she goes, her friend goes, like I feel like you're like the Chandler Bing of our friends group, <laughs> and I go, what do you mean? She goes, you know, like Chandler Bing, like the episode where on Friends where everyone's like, 
Oh, I know what Chandler does. He's the um, and they all kind of like <laughs> dot dot dot. Yeah, yeah. They don't. You know, it's like what what is he right? And so it's funny because actually, as you started talking about yourself, I realized I was like, oh my gosh, that's how this I. This is ringing. <laughs> well, I was like, that's how I view you because I was oh, like, okay. I don't I don't know even exactly what your day to day is. I'm just my perception is she just does everything like her hands in everything. You know, business, entrepreneurship. You know, and I imagine you probably do have very um, segmented. It's too strong of a word, but. I would venture to guess that the start of your day could look very different mm-hmm. from the end of your day in terms of the people you're interacting with and the communities you're with. Absolutely. Um, well, and I do think, and one of the things I'm most excited about this new role with the council is that it's really looking at systems and ecosystem as a whole. So in the past, I've done things from directing a technology accelerator to providing one-on-one consulting with small businesses um, to helping nonprofits figure out their sustainability plans. And, I, you know, working in these different silos and also different areas, it's really great to be able to sit back and look at the way all of those things intersect and connect and then mm-hmm. think about if I had to solve a problem that could help all of those different industries and all of those people um, and help multiply their impact what would some of those things be? Mm. So standing back and saying, okay, in this role, I can actually look at programs and different ways that I can affect systems to really help people at scale, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell me the story a little bit. Since we're talking okay. about story, mm-hmm. what is the story of Jeanette? Because I see you today and you're, you're, very, you're obviously very gifted and, and talented at what you're doing today. And you're obviously very passionate about it. I always, for, especially for my listeners, I always try to trace that to the starting point. Right. And so what got you into this? What got you motivated around this? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you know? I mean... <laughs> to some degree, yes. Okay. Well, there are certain defining moments. Um, and when I went to liberal arts school, and before that went to Arkansas Governor's School. And oh, big, my gosh. I remember this. <laughs> so a big part of that... Um, is is this nonconformity that was not necessarily part of that, but I was given permission at that point to actually question things, hmm. not just authority, but question uh, the reality that you're presented with or the stories that you're presented with. And so I think it's that critical thinking piece that really drove me to ask the questions of, is this the best? Is this the best possible solution for this problem? Are we asking the right questions? Is it a way? Is there a way that we can do things better? And that's one of the many reasons that I like talking to you because you're very quick to say, this isn't going to bruise my ego. I'm, you know, 100% open to new perspectives. And when I went to governor's school, it was the first time that I was introduced to people who were outside of my communities and from different places in Arkansas. And it was a big eye opener for me Mm -hmm. to be. Everyone's bringing their experiences, their biases, whether they acknowledged it or not, as well as their openness to figure out um, what they wanted to study in that particular track. And then we also had area two where we looked at philosophy as well. And so I think that was a big pivotal moment. And then also looking at Um, studying and learning how to research and find answers without a hundred percent knowing like what the playbook is Mm. so really early on I became comfortable with the skill set that 
has opened up a lot of opportunities in the realm of innovation because everyone has to actually deconstruct what they've learned um, and also become comfortable with uncertainty. And Mm. I think that I was able to do that at an earlier age. So, you know, it's, I think what I really like too about your story is it's like you don't realize the bubble you're in until you have that moment that you're like, (laughs) oh my gosh, wow. Mm -hmm. You know, and I just, um, I just remember moving to Houston. I was a teacher in inner city Houston. Actually, before that, I was in the Delta in Mississippi. And it was, it was literally, it was like, oh my gosh, like my, all of my data Mm -hmm. in terms of what I was using to describe the world around me was all biased in what that bubble had been. And I had a really awesome upbringing and I don't, I don't, um, have any negative feelings towards that at all whatsoever but it feels like that's kind of the beauty of the journey is like Mm -hmm. it's like this aha oh wow this is so different now exactly and it gives you perspective and then appreciation for other people's perspectives and i think that um, at the core of innovation when we talk about diversity when we talk about equity and we talk about inclusion those are the survival traits I think especially in innovation it's because we have to have that manifold perspective in order to get to the very best possible pathway and also be willing to to move and pivot based on what the market data is giving us and I think especially entrepreneurs, especially nonprofit leaders, that passion is, can sometimes be the blinder because you have in your heart this North Star direction, which is wonderful when you look at a mission but then or a vision, but then when you look at the mission and also the tactics, tactics being able to um, ebb and flow based on changing conditions, it's really important. Well, I mean, it feels like the passion is actually the main disruptor, mm-hmm. in the, in, which sounds odd because, like, obviously – you want to be passionate in anything you do. Right. Right. But it feels like, um, you know, and I've seen it happen firsthand where even to a nonprofit or an entrepreneur where you say, you know, what you've described is not functional in its current form. Yep. And it's like you, it's like I kicked their dog. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You know, or yes. I've ruined it now. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's, I think it's valuable to understand that I'm, I am biased in terms of how great this solution is. Right. And it doesn't mean that it's not great or that mm-hmm. it can't be great. I just need to now figure out the actual tangible steps to make it something yes. that the market... Yes, that confirmation yeah. bias that you're talking about, uh, if you could set it aside, you would have fewer bumps and bruises. Like you're still going to get bumped <laughs> and bruised along the way, um, but you can definitely uh, ease it. If you're able to really step back, and again, it's that idea of like, okay, this isn't about me. Um, and if I were to step back and look at the different inputs, like, what am I not seeing? Mm-hmm. And so, being that con- continuously inquisitive, I think um, it makes the world ever interesting, and it also helps you continue to stay relevant. I think with the challenge, though, a lot of times, as a, especially as an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. and even even as a nonprofit director, for example. Especially if you're running a non, I mean, this is the majority of nonprofits that are, you know, when they first start, there's no, there's no donors, there's no investors. Um, same would probably for any startup. It's interesting because setting aside that time to reflect and ask questions, I feel like it's, it, sometimes it feels, um, it feels impossible, I guess, because and some people think it's indulgent. Yeah. Even though. Hmm. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like that uh, that evaluative 
nature, mm-hmm. it's hard to do that also when you're simultaneously in the weeds. Absolutely. And I guess it takes a discipline to like really, I don't know. Yeah. No, I went to a pretty eye-opening two-day workshop that was run by the Racial Equity Institute. We talked a lot about structural racism, about um, advantaged populations, oppressed populations, you know, what the narratives are around that, and also associations. But it really, you know, they give a wonderful framework that helps you look at all those things. And so when you think about the people who are... um, in the weeds, putting out fires, maybe living hand to mouth, you know, it's difficult to instill these things like strategy and stepping back. Like you always hear that age old um, adage of if you're working in your business and not on your business, then you're failing to grow your business. And it's really difficult as we all manage the inboxes, as we all look at our um, overly full calendars to really think of that it really does. It seems like almost unattainable and almost overly indulgent um, to really step back and think about, okay, again, those bigger questions that center you and help you figure out the best path to go. It feels like people are also really, sh- they're, they are not urgent enough, mm-hmm. meaning, yes, I want to grow my business, maybe even to a certain revenue number. Right. And that's my, it's like I talked to someone last week and she said, well, this is my five-year goal. I was like, well, five years is an eternity so far. Why can't it happen in two years? Well, I don't know. I've just never, and it's not like a, right. that that kind of sounds like, here's now that I'm saying this, it kind of sounds like a fluff, like guru marketing. Mm -hmm. Couldn't you do it in six months? And if you hire me, and it's nothing like that. It's just, it's interesting that we, we push a lot of the stuff really far down instead of thinking. Okay, how, how could I get my business there right. in the next 12 what's months? What's the big game changer? Like, what's the right. thing that we could work on now that could truly change things? And it's true. Like, a lot of times strategy, um, you know, it's a bullet point on the agenda, but the agendas are already overly ambitious, and so you never get to talk about those things. And that's right. why, you know, these peer-to-peer forums or sessions that people protect their time to talk to someone like you are so important because – Otherwise, if we're left to ourselves, it's really easy to keep pushing those to the side. And then the work tends to expand um, to fill up the space that you give it. Yeah. Especially it- with deadlines. <laughs> and so there's a there's an excellent talk about managers and meetings. And it's like, why does everyone default to the hour meeting? And this is re- like people blame Outlook or um GCAL because whenever you create something that auto fills this hour long increment and they challenge they in that talk challenged us to think about okay what's what can you do in 40 minutes or what can you do in 30 minutes and I do think uh, when you look about the manager schedule versus the maker schedule like it's really important to block the time so that you know you aren't finding yourself segmenting your day in so many ways where you're not able to do um, what Cal Newport calls deep work. You mm. know, I have read that book and I, it makes so much sense to me. And the ones or the people that I know who are very, very um, thoughtful about the way they do their time. And those, those are the people that seem just 
exquisitely prolific. You're like, how has this person like published all these books or created all this content or done all these things? Like what sort of magic is happening or are they outsourcing all of this and putting their name on it yeah. or have ghostwriters? Right. Um, but I found that those are the people who are extremely protective of their time and it's because they realize the value of their time. Yeah. And so, um, and I'm not, and that's something I aspire to do. And so I think that part of what I bring to conversations are those connections. And it's because my calendar is kind of overly dominated by these conversations, which I love. And so I feel like I've put a lot of investment in that social currency and mm -hmm. being able to um, talk to people and network them with other people. But I haven't written nearly as much as I'd like. <laughs> you know, and it feels like a lot of what we do professionally is it's like rote memorization. It's like, oh, this is this is what being a professional means. And I think that falls into like even the manager world of like, well, yeah, I mean, everyone has an hour meeting on Monday. <laughs> exactly. Stand like, well, up. <laughs> exactly. Right. And it's like, and, and you know, what's really funny to me. I was talking to someone the other day and um, he, he and I were talking. I've actually had a few conversations on this, but so I put out this article. I can't remember if it was an article if it was in the newsletter, but it basically said annual reviews are pointless. And um, I really wasn't trying to frustrate anyone, but I had this one individual who, he, he just said, basically, so you would just prefer never to evaluate your people. And I said, no, I just, in my mind, it makes a lot more sense. And it's faster right. in the moment to provide feedback than it is to, well, ooh, it's, ooh, this happened in February. We have to wait yeah. till December before we bring this up. Right? right. And he said, well, I mean, what's the alternative? And it was just funny to me because mm -hmm. I, as he and I were talking, I just realized this is so ingrained in your mind of mm -hmm. this is what an organization did what an organization does. I mean, you have your annual reviews, you have yeah. like your Monday meetings and, and, and it's no ill will. Exactly. Yeah. I love that word. Yes, mm -hmm. it exactly is. And it's, it's, it's like, um, we're like robots professionally. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is what an organization does. And it's funny to me because it think reads it, like the table of contents for an annual <laughs> report. You know, when I think about being innovative, sometimes we, um, we make it this really techie or like expansive term mm -hmm. and it's very nebulous and it's like, wow, how do I be innovative? I mean, right. but, but sometimes it feels like there's a, there's a tangibility of being innovative where it's like, you know what, we're not going to do annual reviews anymore because mm -hmm. we're going to try and it may not work. Right. We may totally flop with it. But I think that's part of being innovative is mm -hmm. I'm going to break the mold. Yes. And, and experiment. Just, right. So that I can get <laughs> real data. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with that. Um, I was listening to a podcast. Was it one of the Jasons <laughs> that have to, um, that did base camp? And it was interesting because they, they decided like, we're only going to work at 90 day sprints, you know, or 30 day sprints. And so that's how they looked at their work you know, whenever they had their meetings among their team members and talked about what is important, they're like, okay, structure this at a 30, 60, 90 day sprint so that they, everyone was focused on showing results for what that idea is. And they were completely comfortable with thinking, okay, that some of those 30 day sprints, we may just throw those efforts away because we'll quickly learn that that's not a good use of our time. Uh, but it was this, you know, rocket boost to their productivity and the team members also felt they got that fast um kind of injection of you know 
like accomplishment. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, urgency and accomplishment. So it keeps you moving, and it doesn't feel like you're marching towards this year-long goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helped keep you accountable to your teams. But it was really interesting because uh, some of those more experimental leaders have been able to do really difficult things like managing distributed teams, um, really helping their employees feel like actual owners of the company, because I think that's a huge struggle when you talk to business owners is, you know, people are like, ugh, the people part of it is the most grueling aspect of it. And that is in terms of like finding the right people and training Uh the right people and being okay if I'm losing that right person after I've invested Uh all this time in training them. but he more so, and I don't, and I think people understand they're like, it's really difficult to find the motivation of an employee to care about the business as much as I do as an owner. And so I'm always fascinated with leaders who've been able to build those cultures where mm-hmm. their employees really do care about mm-hmm. where that company is going in the short term and in the long term because they see themselves there. You know what? I'm kind of, um, I'm kind of like annoyed at like the the way this keeps coming up in um so surveyed like around a thousand business owners and like 42 percent said employees is their biggest issue their bait <laughs> yeah and the other the next next highest was cash flow mm-hmm. and so it's it's money and people is basically what it is it's the same thing with founders if you yeah. talk to them <laughs> it's like i can't accomplish what i want to accomplish because i haven't raised enough dollars and i can't find yeah. the right Developers. <laughs> Which, just as a random side note, what was really funny was um, the Social Innovation Challenge at the mm-hmm. U of A. I was laughing with Rogelio about this because the students, you know, had these really pretty cool solutions. But the two caveats was where, where are you going to find the people to do it, and where are you going to get the money? And they were like, "Oh, well, we'll just find people, and we'll just get a we'll just get a grant." Grants. You know, and I'm like, guys, it's not. Yeah. You can't wave a wand. <laughs> Right. You're trying, you're, you're discounting the main disruptor right. that keeps people from actually doing these yeah. things. But going back to what I was saying, though, I think the reason I'm getting annoyed more and more, it's, it's because of how complicated mm-hmm. I'm seeing leaders and owners make this management piece. Mm-hmm. And, and I get that leadership is hard. I've done it. I have mm-hmm. felt the tension and pain of, I can even think back to people today, if you were to ask them, would say, oh, he was a terrible boss. So right. I, I, I get it. But at the same time, it's weird to me how it feels like we're overcomplicating the conversation where mm-hmm. it's like, how do we motivate people or how do mm-hmm. we give them a sense of autonomy and how do we, mm-hmm. and, and it's, in my mind, there's such a simple equation there of, you know, valuing them in a way they want to be valued mm-hmm. and like actually giving them that ownership. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we make it so challenging because we're looking for an answer that doesn't remove, um, I don't know, it like we're looking for an answer outside of um, my direct intervention, meaning, right. meaning it's like, okay, I want them to be this, this, and this, but I also don't want to have anything. Right. I don't Can want to have to deal. I just buy a piece of software that I can <laughs> cross this off my list? Exactly. No, but I think the key in what you just said was in the way that they want to be valued. Mm. And I think that's a difficult thing, especially when you look at generational differences. Um <laughs> The activities that you have to engage in and able to be able to understand that more fully and then also as conditions change. And so that's a lot of one-on-one time that I think people um, don't get to spend with the folks in their organization. Um, 
And they may be, you know, it's almost like the love languages when you look at relationships and it's like you can have two people putting in 100% effort but in different ways and, and, the, and they both not feel valued mm-hmm. for the work that they're doing. And so, yeah, I think it is, well, we're people, we're so complex. Mm-hmm. We're so complex in that sense. And so I think it's a very simple solution in that sense. But then sitting and like truly understanding how people feel valued and what you can do in order to make them feel valued. This can be a tricky, can be tricky. I think it's also, and I feel like this is the differentiator between really good bosses I've mm-hmm. known and really bad ones. Absolutely. It's, it's like the perspective on their relationship, according to me, in the mm-hmm. sense of the bad bosses are typically very much, um, maybe, maybe even ego driven is too harsh a word, mm-hmm. but you work for me, right. you're serving me. Yeah, the pecking order. Yeah, why would I invest back into you? Mm-hmm. I'm giving you a paycheck. In, in terms of right. like what's owed, it's, it's like any relationship, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. it's like the highs and lows of even marriage where it's like, yep. you know, I've done more for you lately, so you owe right. me more yeah. as opposed mm-hmm. to like a really healthy marriage, which is like, you know, I just, I just want to give all the time. Right. It feels like the best bosses I've known, they flip that pyramid and they're thinking, you know, yes, I'm giving you a paycheck, but also how can I, right. you know, give you a sense of fulfillment here, mm-hmm. a sense of ownership here. And yep. it, it, I think, and, and I know that's really challenging, but it doesn't always happen. Yep. If you like. I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> wholeheartedly. So now we're like, well, that stinks. <laughs> but let's do this. I That was a really lovely conversation. I, I do want to connect the dots mm-hmm. a little bit more with you mm-hmm. and get a little bit more clarity. You know, you had this aha moment yep. at Arkansas Governor's School. You might even, um, which I don't even really remember what governor's school was, other mm-hmm. than the fact that I remember there were a few people in my school who went uh-huh. and it was like, a really big deal. It was like, oh, wow, they're going oh. to governor's school. I was actually dating a girl who, was there in the summertime? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She went away to governor's school and I went and visited her one time. That It's a big deal. So as a rising senior to go and live on campus someplace um, with your peers from all across the state and then being there, you know, without any responsibilities but to think and to connect with people and to really do a lot of that self-awareness and exploration um, with the direction of some pretty fantastic professors or teachers. And so that was really, really incredible in that sense. Um, yeah, but it was it was the first time like away from my parents, I'm responsible for myself. Um, so you have that self-direction. And then it also introduced me to what would become the, the college where I would attend. So it was at Hendricks College, and that was the big determinant, I think, because I, during high school, like a lot of people um, in my class, if you weren't going, you know, if you stayed in state, you're probably going to the University of Arkansas, and then you had different groups that are, were just like chomping at the bit to get out of the state, you know, and to, and to leave. And so that was a very critical moment, too, was making that decision when I was trying to decide on where to go to school to stay in state um, and really form the, the connectivity and the networks that's really kept me here um, through that experience. You know, they say Northwest Arkansas, and I know the number, everyone quotes a different <laughs> number. And it's just funny to me. It's like, what's the number really? Yeah. But, you know, 30-something. Yeah. Who are here every day. Yeah. I've heard anywhere from like 32 <laughs> to 34, but yeah. It depends, it depends on how feisty I'm feeling. Yeah. Early you know, 30. Yeah. So yeah, you have 
a number, it's growing mm-hmm. bottom line. There's also this reverse. Um, the boomerang. Yeah, you have people who are leaving who are very mm-hmm. talented. Maybe they're here for, you know, their tour of duty mm-hmm. in the vendor world for Walmart, what have you. And uh, I know that this has been a main focus of some of the leadership programs like Leadership Benton County is how do yes. we how do we create roots for our people so that right. the talent stays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so even though, you know, we're net positive, bringing in really great talent, what's been your perspective on helping talent see the value in this area mm-hmm. and especially you know, hitching your wagon to this area long term right. in terms of future opportunity. Absolutely. Um, well, we have a group of site consultants who are coming to Northwest Arkansas at the early next month, beginning of next month. And we were just talking about, you know, what are we going to show this group of site consultants about the region? And typically on a visit like that, you're looking, you know, looking at the industrial parks, looking at the research and tech parks, looking at how much office space is available. Um, But it's interesting because we wanted to sort of showcase the region through a different lens and really talk about talent. So talk about talent development, talent attraction, and talent retention. And so they're going to be looking at everything from early development, like at the Helen Walton of school that's there in Bentonville, all the way up to the different programs that are happening here um, at NWAC and at the university, because a lot of people are making big bets on innovation and entrepreneurship, because we have seen um, through the lens of talent is that we need that economic diversity. And so when you look at the big triggers for what causes people to leave or cause what might cause people to relocate um, here, they're big things, right? Like I had told you, it was a relationship that actually brought me to the area, and that's not uncommon. You see a lot of people leave, fall in love, and then their spouses will come back with them to the area for a job opportunity. So we're always looking at how do we increase this inventory, create this optionality for people who are developing specialized talents and also want to check all of those things that when we talk about human drive, it's like, how do I get fairly compensated for the skills that I've been able to build through my experience and through my education? And then how do I master what it is that I'm doing? Like, is are there enough opportunities where I can see myself being continually um, engrossed in the work that I do? And then also, do I have the mentors around me who can help me grow at every stage? Um, And then it's also, do we have enough opportunities where I can engage in meaningful work? And so I do think for talent, we have, we've got incredible graduates who are coming out of the schools here in Northwest Arkansas, but we're also, as we're growing our companies, creating a lot of positions that require um, technical talent. And so a lot of the efforts at Northwest Arkansas Council and at the leaders of executive committee are looking at pathways where we can create opportunities for people um, who want to be the next coders, who want to be the next, um, you know, technical. uh, Even when you look into the sectors that we're already known for, which is retail logistics, food, um, how do we start finding people who are really specialized in the way that we have to take each of those industries and these directions around innovation, so the data science layer. And so we are getting very creative. We're getting creative, um, 
you know, Lambda School presented at the Northwest Arkansas Tech Summit, and they provide a data science degree, but it's not your typical pathway. Like, you apply, when you get in, it's nine months, and at the end of it, um, instead of paying tuition or something that you would ordinarily do for a degree uh, defined program, is you actually pay a percentage of what you earn after you get placed. Um, and then there is a, a cap to that. But that really is, again, taking what's um, a really technical training and make and just like taking this barrier to entry away so that people can learn those skills and really upscaling a group relatively quickly to be able to provide meaningful work in the industry. And so, yes, we have wonderful talent. Yes, we're losing wonderful talent. And But I think the big strategy around talent is creating the quality of life that we think will be attractive to people as they mature in their career and as people are um, feeling stifled in other areas and are really looking at a place where they can make a mark. Yeah. And it feels like there's a direct relationship there with educating current businesses on, um, and, and not to, you know, put out a broad brush statement of, you know, we just all need to be more innovative, but... But it's like a conversation I was having with someone the other day on how we typically hire. Mm -hmm. And so typically we're very resume driven, yep. which I don't really even fully have an issue with, but we're very resume, resume driven. And we're also almost to the point of a, like it being a meme of uh, <laughs> the whole, you know, entry level position about the sneeze. I'm okay. <laughs> the entry level position. Uh-huh you know, three years minimum experience required. Right. And so you even, even like I'm thinking of like the pipelines the of talent, credentials. you know, and it's like, um, I was talking to Rahelia about this mm -hmm. of like, uh, people even who, uh, have relocated here, refugees who relocated mm -hmm. here, who have passions in becoming programmers or, or just different things. Yeah. And how do we create a, a pipeline there where someone can get it, get trained mm -hmm. and is experienced enough to start contributing to our, community right. in this very exciting area yeah. um, but in some ways we're preventing that from happening because mm -hmm. of again well how we've always hired people how we've always developed that pipeline of talent mm -hmm. um, and how we're training people to get really good at like one particular job description at one particular corporation or mm -hmm. you know it, versus teaching these skills that could be deployable anywhere, like everywhere. And I think that that is kind of what stands before a lot of these students now is how do I, um, how do I create this portable equity and learn these skills that I could, and I could get hired tomorrow by any of these large companies, but then what about the community can we bring to them so that they, of their own volition, make the choice to stay mm -hmm. kind of, I mean, not unsimilar to like what I decided for school. It's like, okay, now that I do have all these options that I, in my mind had yearned for in all these ways, I still made that conscious decision of, no, I'm, I think what I'm looking for is right here in this state. Um, and it served me well, that decision has served me well. So once you got out of school, again, I'm just connecting more dots. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> What, what happened next? How'd you, how did you okay. get to today's role? That's so really what I'm curious it's about. a very, it's a zigzaggy path, but um, mm -hmm. 
I majored in English and I minored in art and in ceramics. And so right out of school, I, I worked retail. I worked like the early morning shift at linens and things where I unpacked the trucks like at 4 a.m. And everyone laughed because I was not... Um, did not have the physical stature of most of the other people there, but I pulled my own weight. I could climb ladders and like sling bed in the bags um, on top of shelves. And then so when you I have a backup plan, if this <laughs> yeah, doesn't work out exactly. But then I finished early, and I, I think I worked at a Hallmark, and I've like ordered the cards. But then I also was helping a local artist paint murals on Mexican restaurants. I was teaching families like how to throw, use a ceramics um, wheel and throw pottery. And so it was a very kind of, uh, kind of patchwork (laughs) out of the gate. It was kind of this patchwork lifestyle where I was able to practice art, which was really fantastic. Um, And so I was able to take commissions and create different artwork. I was able to teach. And then I was also um, had the flexibility working with retail so that I could earn what I wasn't quite making yet in art. And so that was an interesting foray right after school. Um, And then I made the decision to move to Northwest Arkansas. And typically, like when you, as an English major, the First questions I always received, like, are you going to teach? Are you going to get your master's? Are you going to go to law school? Those were all sort of the accepted pathways for the degree that I was, I was like qualifying myself for more school. Um, but I had made the decision that I wanted to apply the English and art to advertising and marketing. And so the first things that I did, I also, in, in central Arkansas, I helped put on like farm tax schools too. So again, hodgepodge, <laughs> always been a hodgepodge of experiences. But again, to um, in order for me to explore uh, the projects that I wanted to explore creative, creatively. And so I moved to Northwest Arkansas um, and worked at a home-based business in Springdale. Mm. And it was really funny because the owner who I love is, and is near and dear to me and is still a creative entrepreneur that I brainstorm with all the time. Um, he took a chance on me and he answered the door for my interview in socked feet. And I joke with him that he had a hole in that sock. <laughs> <laughs> but the kicker was he knew our birthdays are maybe um, a few days apart. Like we're both Capricorns. And he, um, he had the foresight to like give me a birthday card at the end of that job interview. And it really was um, affected me to where I was like, this is a nice, thoughtful person. Um, And so I started reporting to work at a a little house in Springdale, a web design firm, all family business. And and it was the first time that I saw the potential of working in digital. We had... I don't mean to interrupt. So going from art to a web design firm, Mm -hmm. it seems like there's... As a copywriter. Okay. As a copywriter, okay. yes. <laughs> okay. Because I was trying to figure out yes, the disconnect that or connect was a, them together. Yeah. So as an English major, like I, you know, had developed chops as a, um, as a writer. And so I had lots of writing samples from my internships that I had at Hendrix. And so um, that was what was missing from that particular firm. It's like they could design things, but they needed someone at that time to write the meta tags, to write the copy, um, to put out the newsletters and things like that. And so at that juncture... Yeah, it was the first time that I saw that we had a pretty significant, I think, portion of our client base 
were remote because we were building websites. I think there was a guy in Australia that we never met, and he was one of our biggest clients. And oh. we created all these new sites for him. Um, what year was this? What year was it? It was 2001 when I moved. Wow. Yeah. Cool. And what was the it? internet was young. <laughs> it was. Well, and and we came up with this idea of like one grand website, and it was and it was a thousand dollars where we would use PHP to allow you. And I think at that time it might have been ASP. Um, so you can manage your content. So we're like, so you can keep your content fresh. And what was funny is it was such a hard sell. And I can, you know, I'm not going to be obnoxious to say that we were thinking about the same things that WordPress was doing and trying to sell it on a local scale. But it very much was we sold that package and had these retainer agreements, but people just did not see the value. At that point, it was very much like, to be legit, you needed your domain, your .com, and your website. And people thought, okay, I've checked the box. Like, we're online now. Um and it's been really funny to see how dramatically that's changed. But through that particular experience, um, you know, as a small business, I got to learn everything from production to sales to doing quotes to all of these things that I just happened almost by accident. Like, I was really there to write, but as I got more familiar with clients, um, I started performing a lot of those functions. And... It got to the point where uh, I think they were really trying to politely lay me off, and I, for some reason, was not getting getting the message. And um, and I came back. I came back and happened was in an empty office. And then a client came in the door. I had a real great conversation, and I and I made a huge sale for the company. And so. By being a little bit naive and not being able to take a hint, um, <laughs> you're still here. I wow. ended up becoming a, a partner in that company wow. and taking a larger role, and we and we built it more so from there. Well, I, you're incredibly humble in how you tell that story. <laughs> Only in the sense I just think about, you know, you went from in your minds uh, essentially almost being laid off to going to be a partner in the business. Uh, or whatever term would be used, mm -hmm. you know, a critical piece of that. So you have two sides professionally, yes. how you're perceived and valued within a company. Um, you call it naivety, but I, <laughs> but I also just wonder, was there a, a switch that got flipped or like a, was there another aha moment or, cause I think there's people listening who mm -hmm. would, you know, they're, maybe they right. feel, they feel right. like they're on that, you yes. know, I'm the lame duck of my business, yep. but how do I be, I think it was, and we, and what's funny is that my partner at Walt, that always laughed because when we got our, when we moved out of the home, we got a big client and we moved into our first office space and it's what's now the Montessori school in Fayetteville. They've since put a gorgeous facade on, <laughs> but when we were there, um, I kind of fought him a little bit on where they wanted to put my desk. Like I had the biggest desk, but it was like this L-shaped desk that we, like someone had donated to us, but it was right in front of the door. And I was like, now everyone's going to think I'm a receptionist. <laughs> and, they, and so that became the big joke of like moving me around the office um, because, you know, I would have those really frank and creative conversations where we would say, oh gosh, you know, I, you know, no matter where I was in the room, because, you know, maybe I wasn't the right gender or maybe I didn't have enough gray hair. It's like, even if I were leading a meeting, everyone would turn to, um, 
my partner who's also our designer and then like look for affirmation mm. and so we would always joke <laughs> that that was the dynamic and I think that's what was really wonderful is to have team members where we all equally valued what the other one did and in a way like that kind of jocularity like gave me permission to do a lot more things as as if I were an owner in the business. So what we talked about. So I was able to talk to this client, really not thinking of myself as a salesperson, I think, is what, what served me in that moment. Because I really was just trying to, you know, be a good citizen and answer all of his questions. And so by the end of that, um, when he... Basically, we talked about pricing, and he said, yeah, just send me this, and I'll sign it, and we can get started. Like, it really did just feel like something that fell in my lap, where I'm like, oh, wow. Mm. I I closed the sale without knowing that's what I was doing, and that wasn't scary at all. And so I do think that naivete that I has, again, served me before, even in conversations where I haven't done my research or not knowing that who I was talking to is someone that, you know, had I had more information or researched a LinkedIn profile that I would feel... Um, intimidated by and so having that happen a few more times it really kind of I think the fear of that crumbled away yeah it's it's like when you give someone well especially when you remove the fear mm -hmm. or like you know um, the reminder of someone's positionality I think a lot right. of bosses are like well you're just a they won't say it that overtly yeah. but when it comes to making decisions yes. you, don't, you don't get to make that decision and you know what's really funny? The story, I don't remember who told me this, um, if it was a previous guest or someone just told me this in passing, but listening to you, there's a real difference between your story and a story someone else told me where this person was told um, they were going into a major meeting and this person was told, you don't get to make the sale, don't talk to the CEO. Right. And if he talks to you, you need to, you need to connect him to mm -hmm. me, who I'm the person who makes the decision, which to me felt very ego-driven. Yeah. So what happens is this individual, I don't remember if he had some kind, if he was wearing something, but basically the CEO realizes that they went to the same college and it was like some small school or something like that. Mm -hmm. So the CEO sits down next to him and is like, Hey, how's it going? Tell me about, <laughs> so you went to so-and-so. That's awesome. Right. Well, this guy's like sweating. And so the person who told him not to talk to the CEO walks in and sees uh -huh. him sitting next right. to the CEO. And it's kind of like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And so he's like under the table texting his boss being like, hey, he just sat next to me. I don't know what to do. And he, the person was basically like, you need to end the conversation and then have me switch with you. So he's telling me this story and I'm thinking like, this is so but That's ridiculous. a lot of choreography. I know. And it could just be a conversation. Well, and I just yeah. thought, you know, what it, what it basically came down to was you don't have the authority right. to make the sale. When ironically, right. that trust that was there from mm -hmm. the get-go would have made him the best person Absolutely. to close it anyway. Absolutely. But it's like these weird politics yes. or do you have, you know, yeah. pandering? It's, it's just weird. It is very but strange. It, but and, I, and when you peel away the titles and when you do, and that was another thing that we did when we curated prologues, it's like, we had such a mix of people who came from different walks of life, had different titles, you know, um, but just those air it's just this air that we just it's better if we just leave those at the door as well and i think that because essentially even when i talk to founders who are trying to think of the best way to approach an investor a particular client it's like 
you're talking to a person mm. and all of us have what you were talking about earlier when you're saying, um, it's almost like you're on autopilot. Mm -hmm. Um, and in that workshop that I was talking about earlier, they talked about human nature and how we have system one thinking, which is like real snap judgments. And we also have our system two thinking, which is where you really do deep analysis. And for the most part, we spend 90 to 95% of our time in system one thinking. And, um, and so it's very much, there's a guy who does like Graham corporate communications and he does a lot of training around likability. Hmm. And he talks about studies and research has shown that, you know, 58% um, is about the way you present yourself, like what you look like, which sounds like this debilitating percentage, but it's not so much like physical beauty or aesthetics as much as it is about openness and warmth. Um, and then like another percent like another out like the second highest percentage is like the sound of your voice and like your facial features and and he was saying that the most likable people are the people who have like warmth and inflection in their voice and they have like open face they have you know open body language and almost like the way that when you talk to a kid or a baby like when you look into a, a crib and you're just like hi like those types of facial expressions are what is most attractive or like if someone was going to make a split judgment of like i like you uh, you know they're really looking for those and like only seven percent of it is our words yeah which you know what's so funny to me even listening to you say that it's so funny to me how like a lot of that just sounds like being like just a normal yes, person exactly <laughs> it's letting your humanity shine through and not trying to pile on all these engineered facades. And I think that's what people, they want to dress up for the opportunity that they're looking to find. And I think sometimes, like the overthinking, overanalyzing, you know, you'd even in prepping me, we're just like, if I mess with this, like don't overthink it. <laughs> because people get in the way. They get in the way of themselves. Um, yeah, and so you could read, and I've seen all these different books, like, fierce conversations or different things. And when you look at like the true advice, you know, it goes back to everything that you need to know you learn in kindergarten, you know, that, and it, it still rings true. Like that's when you're learning your way um, to communicate with people, like how to be around your peers in a social structure. And it's not, it's not nearly as complicated as we all make for sure. Um, and it's been considerate. Honestly, being thoughtful about what other people's needs are and being so being self-aware and others aware in a way that you can you can build the trust and have that kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, it, someone shares, shared this with me about six months ago and it's and I realize now it's a really common concept, but I didn't go to business school. So I don't <laughs> a lot of stuff. I'm like, oh, that sounds really good. Oh, everyone's known that for 10 years. But uh, no like and trust like the three yeah. things that everyone every to sell anything. But especially, I think professionally. Terry, the Terry. Um, I don't know who gave Lainey? it to me. Anyway, um, he was a member of my CEO form, and that's what he used in his business. I love it. Oh <laughs> no! Um, it came from Victoria Levitan, who came on the podcast several months ago. But she mentioned she was like, everyone knows this, and I was like, oh okay, cool. Well, yeah. <laughs> but it's so intuitive to me now. I'm like, oh yeah, especially like branding wise. Yeah. People have to know you exist. Right. They have to like you mm -hmm. to even begin building trust with you. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's amazing how those three things have nothing to do with, um, I see a lot of leaders who they try to be, their perception is, oh, I have to be type A because that's what's most right. 
attractive to people. And what happens, especially when someone that's not natural to them, they actually just mm-hmm. come across disingenuous or abrasive. Right. But it's their it's their perception of this is what mm-hmm. sells what, to yeah, people. Yeah, it's what the dominant you know, yeah. traits are. Yeah. But you know what else is um, interesting just listening to you? It's funny to me how, uh, and I, I'd like to see this go away, but it's funny to me people who they lead, instead of like who they personally are and their mm-hmm. authenticity, they give the verbal resume. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we just met and like we're still mid handshake. Mm-hmm. And I have I have eight words to convince you mm-hmm. that I'm credible. Right. And so like, for example, I met a guy, I tell this story a lot. I met a guy who introduced himself by his title and didn't give me his name. Oh, he said, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the EVP of, and I said, great, what's your name? Yeah. And he's mm-hmm. like, oh, well, I'm, you know, right. I don't know if he assumed that I would know, but, right. um, and then someone else who I, in case you want to search, him, <laughs> we were shaking hands <laughs> and he said, oh, I've been in the business for 20 years. Uh-huh. Or, I've been doing this for 20 years, which I thought, okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't, right. I'm just so disinterested. Yeah. I don't, right. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, it doesn't, you know, you can't connect with that. Like, right. not, what about that is resonant? No, it's absolutely true. I remember walking into an office um, and they, the receptionist brought me to like a huge conference room and the walls were adorned with all these pictures of the person I was going to meet with, like shaking hands with all these like dignitaries and like super important people. And there were just like countless diploma, like diplomas or certificates or awards. And then I was given what felt like this dossier that was like printed materials of like articles written by this individual. Um, and this was all before he walked into the room. <laughs> and so I was just like, this is a lot of, you know, this is orchestrated and I don't know why it's being orchestrated. And is this meant to like change the power differential in the room? Um, and then, and he came in was a wonderfully likable person and we ended up doing business together. But I thought that that was probably the most formalized introduction that I had. Um, and I wondered why I structured it that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, we are um, out of time, actually. <laughs> I didn't even really get to what I wanted to talk about, which, yeah, which was entrepreneurship and uh, especially aspiring entre- entrepreneurs, what they can glean from you on. With tactical things. Um, yeah, because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of practicality there. We, we'll just probably have to talk again at some okay. point. Okay, I would love but, that. But um, we scratched the surface though. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on. Is, is there anything that, any way that my listeners can stay connected to you? What's mm-hmm. the best way to do that? So startupnwa.com is a perfect place. Uh, we're startupnwa on Instagram and also Twitter. And then when you go to startupnwa, there's a banner across the top that kind of shows the family of Northwest Arkansas Council website. So we have Finding NWA, Careers NWA, Engage NWA. So there are lots of different ways um, where you could just go through those hyperlinks to see the resources and stories and things that are available to you that showcase the region. Great. And then are you active on LinkedIn? I am. Great. I am. You can find me there as well. All right. So for my listeners, send her a follow or just be weird and stalker. So either <laughs> Thank way, you. thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, it too. Yeah. And to my listeners, absolutely let me know what you think about the episode. Uh, send me an email, Blake at goodadvicecoaching.com. Be sure to share the podcast out with your friends and family. And uh, yeah, I'll catch you next week. See you.